Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Our text for the sermon this morning is Psalm 34. This is a psalm that was written by David to commemorate a, a very special time of deliverance in his life, not one of David's better moments. But just because of that, a special testimony this psalm stands for as a, a commemoration of God's abundant mercy and grace to David in spite of his failures, and hopefully an encouragement to us to turn to the Lord even in weakness and seek him. This psalm has had a tremendous impact on the history of the church. The uh, Jesus knew it and quoted it, and the gospel writers quoted him quoting it in the gospels. And then also it's quoted by Peter. We just read chapter two of 1 Peter. This psalm is quoted there, both in chapter two and in chapter three, when, when, when Peter says, if you've tasted of the kindness of the Lord. That's a quote, a reference to this psalm, Psalm 34. And also the early church used Psalm 34 as a, one of its Eucharistic psalms. So one of the hymns that they would sing when they celebrated the Lord's Supper together, they would sing Psalm 34. And uh, not surprisingly, I think, because it says in there, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think that line anchors it very closely to celebrating the Lord's table together. So this psalm is in two main sections or parts. And the first part is what we're gonna focus on today. And it's a hymn of praise a hymn of praise for God's deliverance. In the second part, David turns his attention as a teacher and he starts instructing his audience, his listeners. Um, We'll read the whole psalm today, but we're gonna look at this first part especially, the hymn of praise. Let's read it together. This is God's word and it is eternally true, Psalm 34. Starting with the title, a psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. This is the word of the Lord. So let's just look a little bit at the context for this psalm, which is referenced in the title. It says, a psalm of David when he feigned madness or pretended to be crazy before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. So Abimelech, was a Philistine king. The Philistines were the sworn enemies of the nation of Israel. They were their constant oppressors. The Bimelech was one of their kings, the king of Gath. And he's called Achish in 1 Samuel. You, this is, this, the account of this story is found in 1 Samuel. If you've been following along with the Bible reading plan uh, with many of us here at the church, you've, you've encountered this chapter recently. And in, in that chapter, Abimelech, as he's called in this psalm, is called Akish. And the reason for that discrepancy, I think, is this. Akish is likely his proper name, his, first, his personal name. Like, I'm Jody, he's Akish. And Abimelech is his title. So many civilizations have had special titles that they give to their leader. Caesar in Rome, Pharaoh in Egypt. You could say Tiberius was the Caesar of Rome. Well, so you could say Achish was the Abimelech of Gath in Philistia. What was David doing, though, among the Philistines? These were his enemies. Well, he, was, he had fled there in great desperation because Saul, the current king, 
his predecessor and nemesis hated David. He was jealous of David. He was driven by envy and fear and bitterness to pursue David and try to kill him. This had been developing over some time and it would just become very clear through the confirmation of David's friend, Jonathan, that Saul was out for blood and that this, he was going to die if he stuck around. And so he was so desperate, imagine being so desperate that you leave your friends and your countrymen to seek refuge among your enemies. That's, a, that's pretty desperate. Well, that's where D- David has gone. He's gone not just to Philistia though, but to Gath. Who's from Gath? Goliath. So David, as a young boy, has, has kill, slain the, the Philistine champion in, in, in combat. This is where he's fled. That's pretty desperate. That's especially desperate. He's gone to Gath looking for help and for aid. Well, he's, he's recognized there in Gath by Achish's or Abimelech's, um, his servants. And they're like, isn't this David the king of the land? So they knew his, his reputation preceded him. They knew that this, this man, David, was big stuff back home. He wasn't just the little boy that had killed, the, killed Goliath. He was also the man that they had praised as having killed his tens of thousands, praised greater than Saul, and knew that David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. And they, they bring their concerns to the king, uh, Abimelech, and they say, you know, Basically, they're saying, this guy should not be here. We need to deal with this guy. This is trouble for us. And it, so what does David do? It says very clearly in the passage that he becomes very afraid of the king. Now, when we're afraid, what do we do? You know that your fears are often the source of your sin. You act in certain ways you act out here on the surface or you do this tangible thing that's not healthy, not good, not honoring to the Lord, sin. And if you think about it, you, will, you trace that back to its root, its source. Where does that spring from? What does it come from? Quite often it comes from some fear that you're trying to manage in an unfaithful, faithless way, a sinful way. We have this, we, we respond to our fears in sinful ways. This is just common to man. And it's the explanation for an awful lot of our evil. The way we treat one another in our homes. I've been, I've been noticing among my, in myself, in my home, a growing sin of harshness and impatience. And I really don't like it, but I also feel completely mastered by it. And I've been thinking a lot about it. And as I try to get into it and think, where does that come from? What, what is my motive for doing that? Why am I responding this way right now? Quite often, I'm able, in God's kindness, to recognize that I'm afraid of something. I'm afraid of not getting re- the respect that I want. I'm afraid that my kids are not going to grow up learning how to keep the doors clean or the walls clean or whatever. And I'd lash out because I'm afraid. Fear... I would go so far as to say you're always bearing the fruit of fear. This is the explanation for all of your behavior. You're a, you're, you are a fear machine and you respond to fear, in fear to things. Now, you can, this can be productive and healthy and good because you fear the Lord and, it, and, you, and you, it produces good fruit in your life and obedience and godliness, or you fear the flesh, you fear man, you fear all kinds of things in this world. But you're also, and it produces evil and the disobedience and sin. But you're, also, you're always producing the fruit of, fi- of fear in your life. Think about this. It's helpful to trace back your sins to their root because Christians are those who fight their sin. And if we're going to fight, we need to fight smart. If we're going to fight and win, we need to know who our enemy is, what it is, and to be able to identify and trace back to the root cause, the motivation, the heart motivation that's wrong is helpful. So you can often think about your, what's, what's motivating, what fear that I'm not dealing with by bringing it to the Lord and trusting him with is causing me to behave in this way. And it will likely be helpful to you in your fight against sin. What did David do in his fear? He was afraid of the king. What did he do? 
He pretended to be crazy. He disguised, this is verse 13 of Sam, 1 Samuel 21. David disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and he scribbled on the doors of the gate and he let his saliva run down into his beard. There's an old English word for this, dissembling. David dissembled. You know what this word means? It's like when you present something on the outside that's completely contrary to what's going on on the inside. You basically lie on the surface. You, with, you withhold the truth by your external presentation. You dissemble. You lie and deceive. This is what David does. Hey, kids, have you ever lied to get out of trouble? I said kids, Richard. <laughs> hey, adults, have you ever lied to get out of trouble? Does it work for you? It can. Yes and no. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. In God's kindness, I often got caught in my lies as a youngster. It's scary to think that you can get away with your lies. That's not the kind of person you want to be. Most commentators I read agree that David was sinning here and how he presented himself deceivingly, even to his enemies. And you might think it's justified. This is a time of war. In a time of war, you know, you, all, all means are justified or whatever. But that's not, that's not true. David was afraid and he lied to get out of it. There's encouragement in that for us. Because what David's also doing on the inside, as we see from this Psalm 34, is that he's also praying. <laughs> he's, he's lying in fear, and he's petitioning the Lord for help. That's what Psalm 34 makes very clear. I sought the Lord. I, I cried out to him. That's what's going on in his inner life and inner world even while he's so afraid that he's pretending to be mad and crazy to get out of this scrape that he's in. And the encouragement in that is God heard him. God heard him. It's tempting for us. Satan lies and he tells us, you can't go to God until you got your act together. You can't seek the Lord. He's not going to hear you. You're so messed up. You're so wicked. You just sinned. You just stole something. You just lied. You just cheated. You just looked at that woman with lust in your heart for her. You, you can't pray. You can't seek the Lord now. Tomorrow, you'll probably be better. You'll be feeling better. God will be, you know, time heals. <laughs> and we'll go to God tomorrow. That's what we'll do. This is the voice of, you know, the deceiver in our, in our minds. And I think the, the truth is, godly people are very complicated. There's a mixture of sin and righteousness in the godly. There is nobody perfect and pure but the Lord. But by his spirit, he has given us his spirit. He's poured out his spirit into our hearts. And so there is a war within us between good and evil, between the spirit and the flesh. That's what a Christian is. He's somebody at war with himself, with his flesh and with the devil. That war is waging, and that means that there's always this mixture. Even our best works, our most righteous deeds, the most faithful things that we accomplish in our life are corrupted by our sin, tainted. This, this is who we are. We're really complicated beings, especially the righteous, because there's this war within us. That means we're alive in the Lord. If there's that war, if there's no signs of that war in you, then you, that's, that's not a hopeful place to be. What's hopeful is to be like David here, caught in sin, afraid, you know, resorting to these pretty immoral behaviors of deceiving these people to get out of, the, out of his trouble, but also praying to the Lord. And the encouragement is what? The Lord heard him. 
and answered him. And Satan will lie to you and say, God's, he's, not gonna, he's not gonna have anything for you until you get your act together. And David, in this psalm, shows us that's not true at all. If it were true, nobody should ever pray. Because you can't bring anything righteous to the Lord, anything lily white and pure. That's how corrupted you are. Even your prayers are corrupt. But God is so kind and so patient and so full of love for his children as a father. He remembers our frame. He knows that we're but dust. And he will answer our prayers. He will hear us and he will supply what we need. Even more than we think to ask for. That's the kindness and the goodness of God. So go to the Lord and pray to him, seek him. That's what David's celebrating in this psalm, by the way. You know, he doesn't come away singing a song about how clever he was in coming, devising this plan to, to get away from the enemy. He doesn't even mention that. He describes it all to God. God has done this great thing for me. And I'm, I'm committing myself to praising his name continually. And all of you, come join me. Come praise him. He is great. And why is he great? Well, he's great in no small part because he overlooks sin. And he's not, he's not like a tyrant. He's not exacting. He's very, very generous. That is worth praising. The generosity and the love of the Lord. Well, David begins with verse one. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He's resolved to praise the Lord at all times. This is the time of year where we talk about resolutions. We take stock of our life, of our weight, or of our habits, and the cleanliness of our home, or any number of things in our life that we, we have been neglecting. And we think, okay, now's the time to start fresh, and here's what I'm committing myself to this year. 2021 is going to be much better because I'm going to do this. I'm resolved to do this. This is the best resolution we could all make. We should all make, we should forget all of the other resolutions that we're tempted to make right now and just focus on this one. I will bless the Lord at all times and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, how big of a change would that require of you? You know, we measure our exercise plan by the size of our belly and the challenge before us. You know, how many miles a day am I going to have to commit myself to this next year in order to manage that, to deal with that problem that I've got. How big of a problem is your mouth? You know, we think that our biggest problem is how often we curse, and cursing is a sin. But we have a much bigger problem with our mouth than that. That ain't the half of it. You owe to God continual blessing and praise. And if you just listen, take stock of your words, you realize how far short from that benchmark or measure that you fall. You complain, you gossip, you lie, you tear down, you're inane, you're, you, you, don't mention, you talk as if the Lord doesn't exist, and yes, you curse. But there's a whole lot of our talking that does not measure up to this godly resolution of David when he says, I will praise the Lord. I will bless him at all times. If you just think back on how much complaining we've done in 2020, a lot to complain about. But that just shows that we're not cognizant as we should be, not aware as we should be of the tremendous blessings of the Lord and of his kindness to us. And how much there is to bless him for, in spite of our difficulties. Even failing to recognize that he sends difficulties to us as a form of blessing to help us, 
to cause us to turn to him, to cause us to despair of ourselves and of our comforts here and to seek him in glory and to set our, fix our eyes on Jesus and hope in heaven and in eternity with him. Trials do that. Difficulties do that. So we should even bless him for those things, the pains and the sadnesses of our lives. There's, there's something to bless the Lord for in them. I was thinking about Isaiah. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, he sees this vision of God on his throne. This is often our problem, that we're just not aware. We're not thinking of who God is. Well, God pulls back the curtain in Isaiah's heart and mind in a vision, and he sees him. And immediately, what does he say? Oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Your lips were made to praise the Lord. That's their purpose. They're meant to bless Him, they're meant to be obedient lips. Let's resolve with David as we're aware, as we think about the, the goodness of God to us in our lives. Let's resolve with David this next year to use our lips to bless the Lord and to praise him continually. Now, David, God would not just have us parrot the right things, learn to say the right things. He would have this spring from our hearts. And that's what David says in, in verse two. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. So he talks about his, his lips and then he moves to his soul. And that's a necessary connection. God would have our hearts. And if our hearts overflow with joy and love for the Lord, so will our mouths bear the fruit of that joy. It'll just bubble out of us. And you can walk that trail backwards and diagnose your heart pretty accurately. He's the problem with your unclean lips is your unclean soul and heart. And if you're like me, you can think, you can get really depressed hearing that and realize your heart's not where it should be and you can be really discouraged. And I'm, I've, been, I've taken comfort in preparation and this wonderful, one of my favorite verses of the Bible or phrases of the Bible, it says, if, anything, if in anything your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. You can seek him in repentance. You can plead with him to change your heart, to clean it up and to renew it, and he will. God is greater than your heart. So seek him so that your soul will boast in the Lord, so that your lips will boast in the Lord continually. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, says David, the humble will hear it and rejoice. So he starts to turn his attention to other people around him. And he says, the, the, the people I'm most interested in hearing, because I know it will give them joy to hear, are the humble. Do you love to hear praise? When somebody says, praise the Lord for something or other in their life, do you love to hear that? Or how do you feel when... You know you should say that, and you make yourself say it. What's going on? I don't know about you. Hopefully, you're way more godly than me. But I have a fight to say those words, and I have a fight to accept those words when they're said. And I don't know all the reasons why that's the case, but I know for certain it's because I'm proud. I think to praise the Lord and to bless his name in day-to-day -day life and then as we are talking normally with people, it's, it's really a confession of, 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 it's not a confession of power and of,
togetherness and of strength and of self-sufficiency. It's exactly the opposite. It is to confess, I got nothing. God is everything and he is so great. And I am not great. He is great. I, I don't know about you, but I die or have to die a little bit either to say those words or to accept you saying them. And I, it's because I'm so proud. But humble people don't live for proud people like me. Live for humble people. Humble people love to hear God be praised. They love to give glory to God. I've been blessed in my life to, to meet some humble people like that. There are some humble people like that in this church. Live to make them happy. That's what David's doing here. The humbles will hear what I have to say about God and they'll rejoice. This will make them happy. We tend to think that it's, there's, we're going to we get more into others in just a second. David's attention is off. It goes from his own lips and praise to other people and the effect that his praise has on people and wanting more people to join in with him. And we tend to think suspiciously of, like, that's, like, that's not really spiritual. It's about me and God. It's about, the worship is about God. But we need to think a lot more about the horizontal aspects of our lives, especially at the point of worship, as we'll see. He turns in verse three and says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's, re- let's exalt his name together. Here's a quote from a comment, commentator, commenter, com- whatever you call him, writing on this passage. His name is Plumer. I don't know who he is, but he was really helpful. He said, every true worshiper desires others to unite with him in adoring and praising Jehovah. God is so excellent. His mercies are so marvelous. The work of praise is so enlivening, and any praise rendered by one falls so far short of what God deserves that if a good man could, he would enlist the universe of creatures to aid in the aid of the worship that he offers. You see this in the Psalms, You see it in Christian hymns, all creatures of our God and King. Come fire, come moon, come stars. The Psalms are like that too. I I don't remember which Psalm it is, but one talks about, come on, sea monsters and all the deeps of the earth and all the mountains and all of the, you know, the moon and the stars and trees of the field, clap your hands. Come on, let's get this going. Anybody who loves the Lord is really keen to rejoice in him, wants everything around him, wants everyone around him to join with him because it magnifies, it amplifies, and exalts the Lord. Now, you may not be able to enlist the help of the universe. You can do an awful lot for the people around you in worship. In fact, you owe it to the people around you. You owe it to the people up here that are trying to lead you and inspire zeal in you to be zealous. I know masks are discouraging and I don't want to discourage you further. Phil and I have observed this year a decrease in our zeal and our demonstrative interaction with worship and also with our volume. Don't let Phil and I be the only fools here for the Lord. You know, sometimes we're like, come on guys, smiling all we can, and we don't get much response. Do you remember dear Adam and his enthusiasm up here in the front? Sometimes it was awkward I think that was a word that Don used the other day to describe it. (laughs) Oh man. We need more leadership like that in our worship. Because why? You do that, Adam does that, somebody's set free. Somebody's encouraged, somebody's brought along. Somebody gives a little bit more. You owe it to this congregation to give all you can in praise to the Lord. Young people, kids, old people, 
Think how glorious our worship could be if all of us gave 100%. What are you adding to worship? You know, we have an obligation. Several times in the New Testament, it says that we're to sing for the edification and instruction of people around us. It's not just, we tend to think of just about, I come and I worship the Lord, me and the Lord. But we actually sing, according to scripture, for an additional purpose of teaching and instructing and inspiring people around us to, to worship the Lord. And there are these, all these dynamics to what we're doing together here. And so we think about it. Think about what you can do to help and encourage your pastors, your leaders, the people in your row. Fathers, teach your family to love the Lord by loving the Lord demonstrably in worship. Raise your hands, sing out, and you will be teaching and inculcating love for the Lord in your family. What are you adding here? Well, starting in verse four, David gives the reason for his commitment to praise the Lord continually and his joy in the Lord and why he's so excited to get everybody singing with him. And this is his testimony of God's grace to him. He said, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So David was afraid. He sought the Lord even though he was stooping to some pretty immoral things, <laughs> questionable behavior in, his, in the midst of his trouble, he's praying and God heard him and God delivered him from all of his fears. Do you accept that God is kind to sinners? God is kind to sinners. I love the verse from the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, where it says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait or hold back until you're better, what does it say? You'll never come at all. Not the righteous, but sinners, Jesus came to call. Such an encouraging verse. You gotta come to God as you are. And the Psalms themselves, take it as a whole, are a wonderful testament to the fact that you really can come to God as you are. David felt and lived and experienced all the things that you might, and more, (laughs) than an, an average person is going to experience. Fear, doubt, pain, grief, anger, And he showed us how to bring all of that to God in prayer and see God heal us, help us, and answer us. Come to God as you are. Because of Jesus, God hears and answers imperfect prayers from imperfect men. Through the perfect one, Jesus, our mediator and our priest. Verse five says, they looked to him and we're radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. He's bouncing back and forth between his own testimony and the experience of all the godly people. He's like, my, my experience here is not peculiar or unique. Everybody who has looked to him in their trouble has found that he shines his light on their way. They were in confusion and in darkness. They didn't know what way was up. They, they sought the Lord and, and he shone his light on their face and they could see and their way became clear and peaceful and he led them in a good and pleasant way. This is, he's saying, the, this is the, my experience is the experience of everybody who has sought the Lord. And I love verse six. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. What a great example David is being here to God's flock. He's not like, you know, he's not up there in his dignity. He's not up there being Mr. I got it together. He's just this poor man. Listen, guys, imagine having a king or a president like this. 
this poor man sought the Lord and he heard me. Wow, that's good. That's great leadership. And it's so helpful. Well, I, I, was back, I was back visiting my family in Missouri this last week and I was visiting with some friends and they have visited here and they were like, they were just curious about a certain attribute of our church that they really like and they wished that they could have it back home in their church. And they were trying to get me to explain how we got that thing. And I didn't, I, I was, I don't know, I, one thing that came to mind was this, and I think Pastor Bailey, like David here, has been a great example to us in this regard. And one of the greatest blessings, the gifts that Tim has given us over the years is that he is not a hairspray pastor. He's, he's just a man. He's not our hero. He's just a man. And that's super helpful and encouraging because that's relatable. I'm just a man. You guys come here and you're just men and women and children. You got your struggles and your sins. You don't need somebody up here who's got it together. You need somebody that you can relate to. And that, that's what Tim has given us. Let's us in into his struggles and his sins and his fears difficulties. Tim's just, this poor man cried, and God heard me. Now, we should give thanks to God for Pastor Tim, but there's a challenge in this for all of us. Nobody around us needs anything but that testimony from you. You are not going to do anybody a lick of good for their soul if you are burnishing your image or, you know, trying to act as if you got it together. The world does not need that. Your neighbors don't need it. Your children don't need it. Your husband or wife doesn't need it. The people at church don't need it. Coworkers don't need it. Fellow students don't need it. What they need is somebody to say, this poor man cried. And God heard me and delivered me out of all my fears. That's the kind of testimony that brings people to Christ. If you want to be fruitful, if you want to evangelize your neighbors and see people turn and be converted, then be who you are. Be a poor man who cried. There's no, that's state-of-the-art Christian witnessing. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. So this could be a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ who often appeared in the Old Testament to the saints under, those, that, under that title, the angel of the Lord. I believe that's what happened with Samson's parents when the angel of the Lord appeared to them and gave them the prophecy about their son. I believe that was Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus. This could also be just an angel, an angel the angel of the Lord, some mighty being. Either way, this is, a, this is an incredible promise of maximum protection. If you're feeling afraid and you need assistance, who are you going to call? <laughs> the angel of the Lord. Whoa. He encamps around you and defends you. So finally, in the last few verses here, we're invited to put faith to the test and trust God's provision in our lives. David says in verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Young people, particularly you youth, are you familiar with this old expression that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. What makes a horse drink? His own thirst. So you can get him by the bridle or the halter. You can make him come with a whip. You can do all kinds of things to, to coax him and, and bring him along right there to the water. And you cannot make him drink. And your parents are very aware of this, young people, as they 
are concerned about your heart, your soul, where you're going to land, what your relationship to the Lord is, whether you're going to own the faith for yourself. And that's key. They can do, every, they can do a lot for you, have done, are doing a lot for you. They can bring you to church. They can do their best to discipline you. They can read the Bible to you every day. They can make you memorize scripture and recite it back to them. They can do an awful lot of things to help. All the means that God has given them as good and godly parents, they want to do, they're doing the best they can to do it. And they can't, they can't, make, they can't get it done. You've got to have a thirst. And you've got to reach out and take what God offers. Take himself. He offers himself. Taste it for yourself and see for yourself that he is good. We want that for you desperately. We've tasted of God's goodness and kindness. Have we? Moms and dads, you tasted of the kindness of the Lord. You know how sweet and delectable and delightful godliness is and God himself is. We've also tasted of the world. We know it's sugary sweet and doesn't satisfy or nourish and leads to disease and death. We've been there. What we desire for you is to take hold of what God offers you in his word. He offers himself to you, young men, young women, children. You've got you to drink. You've got to eat. You've got to taste and see that he is good for yourself. And we hope that you will. I want to conclude with a couple of exhortations from verses 9 and 10, particularly for the young families among us. It says in verse 9, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. What I want to ask is, do you believe this, young families? The lion is the image, the metaphor used here. Actually, I don't think it's a metaphor. It's just an example. There it is. The lions are the kings of the, of the jungle, mighty beasts. When they want something, they can usually get it. They don't have any problem. Have you, you can watch this all over YouTube. Just look for lions chasing Ostriches, lions chasing elephants, lions bringing down giraffes. The painful, most painful ones, in my opinion, are lions bringing down giraffes. It's excruciating to watch. Giraffes are kind of pathetic creatures. You know, they're huge. But a lion, a pack of lions, can bring down huge beasts. They don't usually have, but sometimes even lions go without food. The nature shows delight to show that too. You know, he's chasing, he's chasing, he's chasing, and oh, he got away. The gazelle got away. I always root for the little guy. And so what God is saying is, even though the lions sometimes go without food, those who fear the Lord will not. God will supply abundantly for you. You don't have to be afraid. So I want to propose a couple of tests to see if you're living by faith, if you fear the Lord. Here are the tests. They're just real painful and practical, okay? Number one, do you give to the work of the Lord? I don't track this myself, and I don't, thankfully, don't know who or who this doesn't apply to. That's handy because I can just look around the room and make eye contact with everybody and feel just fine about it. I don't know who I'm talking to right now. But I do know from the people that do track this thing, these things, particularly the giving of our church, that the young families of our church don't, generally speaking, 
have a good commitment to supporting the work of this church. And I want to challenge you to live by faith with your money. And I want to challenge you with a promise from the Lord who says, if you'll give me first, what I, if you'll make sure that there's food in my house, he says this in Malachi, that's what he says, do this, actually. He's not if. He says, do this. Provide for me and the work of my house. Provide for it. And test me in this. Test me in it. And see if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings and blessings and blessings on you. It's rare for God to invite us to test him. There's one, this psalm is a little, little evidence of that. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The, 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 the most stark one, though, the most amazing one, is there in Malachi 3, when he says, test me now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Now, I can understand that it's hard to be a young family. You're starting out. You, you get a fixer-upper house. You've got a lot of children that are accumulating around your table. And, and you're thinking, you know, I'm just, I'm just struggling to survive to make ends meet, get this done. It's, this is everything I can do just to get this done. And you're asking me to, to do more? Well, what I'm actually asking you to do is to trust the Lord and his promise here in Malachi 3. Do what he says. Give. And give of your first fruits. If, if you wait to the end of the month to give, there won't be anything left at the end of the month. You, you, you do what, like the example of scripture that I, I'm thinking of recently because we're doing the Bible reading. Many of us are, are reading the Bible together in a year. And it says in, in Kings, 1 Kings, the, the story, the account of Elijah and the widow woman. And Elijah, it just stood out to me about faith forgiving. Elijah says, give me a cake first. And then you're going to be sorted. You're going to be Okay. <laughs> And she has faith to do that. She goes and she uses her last bit of flour and she cooks him a cake. And then the flour doesn't run out. And that's how God is with finances. You trust the Lord and you do what he says and your money won't run out. In fact, you'll have blessings and blessings and blessings poured out on you. I can attest to this. Somebody taught me this back in the day. God bless them. I don't know who they were. And Jenna and I have tried to do this faithfully from the beginning of our marriage. And God's just blessed us. And he'll bless you too. The second thing I want you to examine, especially you young people who are growing your families, is your openness to, to children and your decisions about how many children you'll have. I'll come out of the gate and give a disclaimer about it. It'll make some people feel better. There are legitimate medical and mental health reasons to choose not to have children. But there are many more illegitimate reasons to choose not to have children than there are legitimate ones. And we are full of those reasons because we're full of fears. God has joined together the unitive and the procreative functions and purposes of marriage. He's joined them together. God delights in fruitfulness and in his people being fruitful. And I know that there are pains and difficulties associated with children. I think you've seen my row growing. I know them. And I'll just be real honest, Jenna and I have had a lot of difficulty accepting this latest blessing from the Lord. When Jenna asked me, what told me about it, I said, with a pretty, well, I, I, I managed to smile. And I said, well, I'm more happy about it than anything else. 
Have faith for that. Have faith for being fruitful. It's true. It's true. And I can even see it, even though I'm in the midst of, you know, having struggling to have faith for another. It's true, and I can see it. You never regret your children. And they bring such joy into your life. God calls them a blessing for a reason. All blessings have to be tended. He often refers to the blessing of children in natural vine-like ways. So in Psalm 128, it talks about how your children will be like olive branches around your table. Well, what do olive branches produce? Olives. They're, they're, they're productive beings. They bring strength and, and, and prosperity. They're not just drains. They don't just suck. They give. Now, it's true that you have to tend them. You have to discipline and prune and instruct and, in order for them to be fruit, fruitful. But if you do that work, who doesn't want more olives? The strength. I've seen this in my father who has faith for children. I love to call my dad when we have, find out we're pregnant because I know I'm going to get a joyful response. And there are other people I don't want to call. My, the minute my dad heard about our latest one, he's, he was just happy. It was so strengthening and encouraging to me. He loves children. He has faith for children. And he was immediately was just like, that's 20 for me. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that was my dad. It was so sweet. There was a point in me saying that. And I forget it. But I, I want you to have faith that children are, oh yeah, this is what it is. I see and observe the strength that me and my sister and my brother and my adopted brothers and their wives and children bring to my dad in his old age. And you think about the now and you think about all the difficulties of having children and the, the work of it, and it's tremendous work. But you are laying up blessings for yourself and for many other people if you have faith to do that work. Give yourselves to it. Not only to the work of having the children, but also of tending them and raising them so that they will be a blessing and be fruitful for the Lord. Taste and see in these tangible ways. Taste and see that the Lord is good. His ways are good. Don't be afraid. Trust in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for your servant David and for this word that you have inspired and given to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would cause us by faith to take hold of what you offer us in your word and in yourself. And to taste for ourselves and to see that you're good and to trust you, and to rejoice in you and in your blessings to us, which are just tremendous. Help us to be aware of, of all your goodness and to think the rest of this day and meditate on the particular ways you've blessed each of us in our homes and in our lives and to praise you. And I pray that this year would be a year of us using our lips to continually bless and praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.